listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the ACB Advocacy Update. I am Clark Rockfall, Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind, and today I am joined by my co-host. Hi, I'm Swap and I'm Smar. I am the Advocacy Outreach Specialist at the ACB. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about ACB, you can visit us online at acb.org. Uh, And big thank you to everyone who has downloaded and subscribed and rated this podcast, as well as to everyone listening over ACB Radio. Before Swatha, we had a podcast where we were uh, looking at the landscape of the 117th Congress. And by my rough math, Swatha, that was about 100 days ago. Yeah, it was 100 days. Let's go. Yeah, see what happens. And... For for some reason, and our guests here will be able to shed some light upon this for us, uh, the first 100 days of a new Congress and new administration carries some significance. So in that Congressional Outlook podcast, we were joined by friends of and members of ACB, Paul Schrader, who is the VP of Government and Community Outreach for American Printing House for the Blind. Paul, how are you? I am well, Clark. Great to join you. And thanks for coming back. And also we have ACB First Vice President and man of many fancy titles, Mark Reichert. Mark, how are you doing today? I am doing fabulous now that I'm joining you and Swatha and my good friend, Paul. So great to be back with you guys. And Mark, uh, any are the views that you represent today yours and yours alone, or are you here on behalf of either AER or VisionServe? My opinions, such as they may be, will be will be mine alone, not even ACBs. It'll just be uh, Mark Reichert on unplugged or unhinged or on something. <laughs> All right, and at the end of our podcast back in January, the three of us talked about what we were hoping to see, the policies that we thought might be possible here in the 117th Congress. President Biden gave his address to the Joint Houses of Congress last week, last Wednesday, Friday, which was, oh geez, quick math, April 30th, marked 100 days of the Biden administration. Um, And a 100 days of a presidential term has carried significance since FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, how are we doing here, Paul? I mean, <laughs> FDR is the, like, the gold standard for getting stuff done and getting it, getting it done in a hurry at the start of a presidential administration, right? Yeah, thanks, Clark. And I, I should also uh, do the caveat and say that the views I represent are mine and mine alone, um, uh, <laughs> though I do work for the American Printing House for the Blind. You notice case. how no one wants to claim either one of us. Well, no, none funny? of our organizations want to claim. Well, <laughs> that's true. We're not going to speak about our personal lives. No, you no, know, this no. this first hundred days, Mark, uh, if you if you listen to folks, on one hand, people love to talk about it. It's a good reference yeah. point. FDR, you know, yeah, was was probably the one that really got that started. On the other hand, it's, it, you know, many like to downplay it because it, it feels like that that's your 100 days. And then after that, there's pretty much nothing to get done because that's the time period you actually have. It also coincides with what they used to talk about as the sort of the honeymoon that a president would get, a new president, and, and almost regardless of party, uh, would get. A, and that was probably true 
you know, maybe up until Bill, Bill Clinton, um, yeah, certainly, I think so too. certainly up till George W. Bush, I don't think really had a honeymoon. So, um, or you could argue about it, but uh, you know, my view is it, when people ask about this president, the thing I say, again, regardless of your partisan leanings, what's most refreshing is the office of the president functioning as an office of the president and something that, yeah, those of us who are working in Washington on policy issues pay attention to every day, but most people don't necessarily hear something every day. There's not a tweet. There's not an angry outburst coming out every day um, that is being reported on. Some of that might be the media's fault in terms of how they handled the previous president. Uh, maybe they overplayed that, but you know, I think I think we're all feeling um, some sense of relief that the presidency has returned to a bit of a norm of an actual governing institution where people talk about policy and and some of the personal stuff doesn't get quite as amplified. I think that makes so much sense, and and you know, I think we all have our deeply personal, personally felt feelings about the current and previous administrations. But I think Paul, your your point about uh, the media, mainstream media, quote unquote almost amplifying or stoking uh, our previous president is not to be underestimated. I think it's, you know, clearly Mr. Trump didn't need anyone to encourage him. And yet there was certainly a point when they kind of had this sort of reverse simpatico thing going between he and the other mainstream media who almost looked to stir the pot with the type of provocative questions uh, that they pitched to him. But on this 100 days thing, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when when does uh, an incoming president have the most clout? I mean, it's at 12.01 p.m. on January 20th, right? I mean, <laughs> and, and almost literally every second that goes by from that inauguration moment, inauguration day, you know, they are that informal authority, clout, whatever, is slipping away. And I would argue sort of exponentially slipping away so that by the time that you get to, you know, a lot of people talk about at, the term officially is a four-year term, but realistically, it's over in 18 months because then all of a sudden you're into a new congressional election. That's what you're gearing up for with that. And the truth is that's 18 months is on the outside. I mean, it's why I think whether you stick to this hundred day thing or not, it's a perfectly fine. It's not any more or less arbitrary than any other line you'd draw, but this is the time. If you want to get stuff done to try to push things through, play with the procedures, shove as much stuff as you can, uh, because it's only going to get harder from here. It's a little bit like the new car, right? You drive it off the lot and it loses half its value. So you know, That's you get past exactly. inauguration and half the value is gone. <laughs> Nothing like talking about uh, both trying to be optimistic and then talking about the depreciation of the American presidency. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, I mean, how can that be? There are still nominations yet to be filled. Uh, there's still appropriations that need to be passed for future years' fundings, and yet you're telling me that the the clout of the administration in the White House is blown by the wayside. Oh, no, I wouldn't say that. But I would say as the clock ticks, so goes that overall ability to to get things. That, and, and really, the ultimate, we shouldn't make too much of this either. I mean, anything can change. I mean, there could be a massive political blow up in some fashion that, that throws more uh, weight behind, you know, the minority party, the Republicans uh, face even more. Troubles, uh, whatever, uh, you know, and, and the reverse is certainly true. Uh, you know, uh, presidencies that get uh, hung up in scandals could just totally blow things up ahead of time. But on the, uh, the real fundamental point here is that we're not in an election year right now. We certainly will be in 2022. And the reality of it is things are really going to start kicking up with that months before Election Day 2022. So it really is about an 18 month window of when uh, those kinds of raw political uh, obstacles are are uh, 
not in the way. All right. So main takeaway, 100 days, kind of irrelevant to the overall flow and progress made throughout a presidency, but it is the reason that we are all coming together here today. So Swathad, uh, what questions do you have for Mark and Paul regarding President Biden's first 100 days? Yeah, so we've heard a lot in the news about um, how Biden accomplished so much in his first few days. Um, and I was wondering if you, if you two could talk more about what he did and what he didn't do in terms of what, he, that, that, what his goals were. So let's start with that, Mark. Let's start with what are some accomplishments that we've seen from the administration in these first 100 days? Well, picking up on Paul's point, I mean, I, there is so much that a president can do when the president chooses to use the force of her or his office to, uh, you know, affect change. Uh, I forget Paul will remember because he's like that. I think I think it was Theodore Roosevelt who used the phrase "bully pulpit" or coined that phrase. You know, just uh, uh, it, to be able to get up there, speak truth or his version of it, uh, and uh, try to you know uh, push the country along in various directions. But also uh, to exercise, mobilize certain powers and authorities to get some things done. And I don't think there's any question that in these last few months that uh, pressure, top-down pressure. With respect to the COVID nineteen, uh, you know, vaccine uh, thing across the country, I mean, clearly that's that's going to be a, a, a successful legacy uh, for this administration. Not at all without its own challenges. And I think maybe I don't know uh, if y'all want to get into a little bit of the sort of website challenges with that some blind and visually impaired folk and others have been experiencing. To say nothing of just general sort of bureaucratic little snafus here and there, but nationwide across the country, clearly things were a mess. And this administration deserves a lot of credit for cracking the whip, opening doors, doing what needs to be done, both in terms of rhetoric and actual reality to move that along. And then beyond that, I think, uh, Paul, we're going to want to talk a little bit about the success of the legislative uh, proposals that uh, certainly this administration propounded coming in the door and uh, got out at one point. Was it one point nine trillion? Do I remember that uh, right. correctly? Yeah. Uh, that's a that's a heck of a lot of heck of a heck of a package of stuff to accomplish uh, within, frankly, just a couple of weeks of getting in the door. I think that the two things that jump out, um, other than you, you, you touched on the legislative package, which of course was a joint effort between president and Congress, of course, but yep. the two things that sort of jump out about this presidency already is the handling of the COVID vaccine uh, rollout and continued focus. And they've done two things well. One is sort of downplay the the sort of fearful focus on COVID while really doing a, a heck of a job getting the vaccinations out into people's arms, um, way ahead of the goal that that President, incoming President Biden set for the 100 days to have 100 million shots and obviously went to 200 million, whatever. Um, so far exceeded their 100-day goal for that. The other thing is the executive orders. And, and, you know, people who are scholars of the presidency and people who just look at governing have lots of arguments about well, how much the president should be using executive orders. That is orders that the president him or herself can can essentially order by virtue of being president. But President Biden certainly issued a lot of them, not only in the early couple of days, but has continued to do so. Um, and those orders have, have been, you know, I think if, if you're sort of a, a person who wants to see government function to meet the needs and address underserved groups, LGBTQ, several executive orders that addressed um, areas that uh, were uh, advocated by groups representing that area. Uh, people with disabilities and other underserved groups, uh, executive orders. So I think there's a number of topics in that space that, um, you know, we have to, it, it, again, sort of trying to be nonpartisan here, 
Um, whether or not you like the, the focus, certainly very uh, busy and certainly an effort to try to address what President Biden campaigned on. Well, that's interesting about the executive order stuff, because, of course, if if you're the party that's not in power, then you think any ex- executive uh, <laughs> exercise of authority is tyranny. And uh, and that you know goes both ways. But you mentioned, Paul, the executive order around, uh, uh, well, executive orders for people with disabilities. Certainly the president being able to say to government contractors, absolutely no more paying of subminimum wage. Is that an overreach? I wouldn't think so. I think just about anybody who is a reasonable sort of scholar of the law or the presidency would say, look, this is this is part of part and parcel of what the executive can do. He's controlling or she is controlling how money that's been you know, authorized by Congress can be spent, conditioning it. Uh, this is the executive's prerogative. Surely, if the executive can uh, launch, you know, airstrikes on another country uh, using the, you know, presidential authority that way, uh, surely the president can make sure that people with disabilities are underpaid. So let's back up for a second here, because in talking about the 1.9 trillion with a T American Rescue Plan, there was. Uh, just <laughs> a nearly unfathomable amount of. Uh, you know, allocations and funding for various programs uh, to help get America back on its feet, whether that's unemployment, um, stimulus benefits, et cetera, et cetera. One thing that was not included in the American Rescue Plan that was uh, ruled out of scope for the budget reconciliation process uh, by the Senate parliamentarian was the raising of the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And Mm -hmm. There were plenty of folks highly critical of the president, you know, especially on the on the left, um, the, you know, from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, who was upset at the president and Democrats for not getting that across the finish line. So fast forward a, a couple months, nearly three to be exact, and then towards the end of the 100 days, and there's an executive order from the administration requiring the $15 uh, federal minimum wage for contractors. And as you said, Mark, being very explicit that this $15 minimum wage would apply to uh, folks previously employed using Section 14C certificates under the Fair Labor Standards Act. What is the uh, implications of this executive order for employees with disabilities? I think, though, sticking with this theme about uh, presidential authority, et cetera, I think it just shows you that there are any number of ways to, I hate this expression, but it's the only one that's in mind, uh, just to skin a cat, right? Mm-hmm. And that also, you know, it's never over. Whatever, and this is, I, th- I hope, is a lesson that maybe the listeners will take to heart, which is uh, even if you don't, even if you're not successful with a particular thing you want to do today, uh, it's never over. I mean, there's always another method. There's always, whether it's through Congress, through the administration, through the courts, some kind of administrative thing you do. And the, uh, Clark, you were mentioning about spending bills, you know, that whole spending process and budget stuff. I mean, that's a year by year by year thing. Uh, that's another opportunity to move stuff. And maybe we'll talk in a little bit about some of the things that haven't moved yet. Certainly my beloved uh, Cogswell Macy bill uh, hasn't moved, not expected to move. So I guess I shouldn't be too disappointed about that in a hundred days. But but even if that thing doesn't move, there are other ways to push certain elements of policy that you want to get done. So that would be the only thing I guess I'd say, other than the obvious benefit to people with disabilities, which is to say, clearly this administration is an advocate for people with disabilities and is taking time during this very, these are very still early days to uh, focus on our people. And that's a, that's a good thing. 
And I and I'll just add two things. One, I mean, you already sort of alluded to this, Mark, and that is if if you like the executive orders, remember that those can and often are undone by the president yeah. that follows. And that was the case here. I mean, many of the ex- early executive orders that President Biden signed were ones to undo things that yeah. President Trump had done, and vice in, in Trump's case uh, to undo things that President Obama had done. So exactly. that 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 is a reality. Until Congress takes action or until the courts take action, these things don't stick. Um, they are only as good as as long as the president's there. Now, the other thing that we're going to get to, I'm sure. The wage issue has been highly discussed. It's been a huge issue of effort on the part of many, many elements of the disability community. So yeah, there's it's it's good to see action there. I think there's a number of areas that haven't been as highly discussed where where you know we haven't seen action. I you know I think the Department of Justice, uh, what they're doing, uh, what they're going to be doing on ADA is going to be interesting to see. Um, also, in fairness, and Clark, you alluded to this. There's a t- there's still a bunch of appointees that are not in place. Um, in order to make government function. So you're functioning for a good hunk of that 100 days without um, even some of your key people in place, let alone some of the lower level people, the people that we work with more in our community, like the head of OSERS, Office of Special Education Rehabilitative Services, or OSEP for that matter, who have not been appointed yet. At least they weren't as of when we started this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) And anything can happen to me. Uh, Since I'm a nerd, I'll just do Clark this uh, footnote, and that is, how refreshing it was, even though it may be a disappointment to the disability community that the Senate uh, parliamentarian ruled as she did. The reality of it is it was so refreshing to see members in the majority party saying, you know, I'm disappointed. I even, frankly, you know, I disagree with it, uh, but we honor and respect uh, this decision. That kind of, of gesture on the part of the ruling you know, majority party to not try to throw that stuff out is a stabilizing it's a stabilizing influence. We know what the rules are. We're going to play by the rules. Some people out there say, what the heck are you talking about, Mark? I thought they're shoving things through using this big old thing called reconciliation, which I barely understand, but it sounds like that's just a way for the Dems to get what they want. You know, well, you know what? It is. And, and those rules are very clearly established. And we know what those rules are. Even using a process like reconciliation is still a playing by the rules. And it is a very refreshing thing, I think. Uh, to see to see that in place because I think our country's been starving for a little bit of stability for a while. Keeping with the the theme here of appointees, uh, we do have some notable appointees. Say at the cabinet level, uh, we've got <coughs> Secretary Buttigieg, head of the Department of Transportation, uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland at the Department of Justice. Mark. Who is our yes, Secretary of Education? Miguel Cordona, who is a gentleman who was, in, I think, the top public educator appointed, uh, I believe, in the state of Connecticut. Now that I've said that on, on tape, so to speak, you'll correct me, and it'll be some other Northeastern or New England state, but I believe it's Connecticut. In any case, uh, very Absolutely well. correct. Very good, sir. Always good to have the affirmation. Uh, and uh, you know, I think uh, widely uh, respected, and, and, and I think especially given the COVID situation and trying to get America's school-aged kiddos back into the classroom, I think part of the many credentials and experience that, you know, he was lauded or is lauded for is his overall administrative, you know, straight-up administrative capacity. This is not someone who comes merely as an academic. And Mark, does the secretary have a background in public education? Yes. Uh, And how would you say that the secretary is viewed by the disability community? Oh, I, I, I think generally favor, favorably. Uh, I think generally favorably, for sure. 
Um, I think the real test for the Department of Education is going to be those folks who are appointed at some of those key positions that Paul was talking about, particularly in the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitative Services and uh, the special ed program and the you know uh, RSA for sure. And that's really where the, the controversy slash applause uh, will ensue. And Paul, any anything you'd like to add about education or should we pivot to the Department of Labor? Well, we're certainly hoping, uh, I mean, looking for who's going to head up the special education and, and rehabilitation programs in the department uh, for you know, hoping to have leadership <clears throat> there that, that obviously knows the terrain. I think a lot of people, as, as Mark said, you know, we're, we're relieved. A lot of people who follow education were relieved, I think, to have somebody who comes from the public schools, as Secretary Cardona does, teacher, principal, director at the state level. So he's got... Uh, He's still pretty young, so he's done a lot. Uh, It's kind of annoying Uh, (laughs) for us us old guys. Uh, He's he's got a lot of public school background and and just really is beloved, I think, uh, in Connecticut, in his community, as as one of those really unique, wonderful teachers and administrators. Um, So we're looking for good people who are going to be more directly involved in the implementation of disability programs over in the department, obviously hoping to see some uh, good appointments there. But, you know, one of the things I want to stress about the appointments generally, um, I saw this on a, on a fact sheet that the administration itself put out, but a really nice set of diversity in the appointments with the possible exception that people identifying as, dis- as having a disability, only 3% uh, by their own uh, indication at the 100-day mark from the, that is to say, the Biden-Harris administration. So uh, they, they weren't puffing the numbers. And 3% is not great. Um, you know, I think from a, from the standpoint of, of, if you just want to look at the diversity of those who identify as having a disability, and we've talked about this for a long time in our community that we need, you know, we, we need the people, uh, that, that you're, you're now seeing in the Biden administration, uh, Austin at the defense, who's an African-American first time that that's been the case, the, uh, Holland, Congresswoman Holland, now interior secretary is native American, um, just, you know, some very cool, diverse appointments. 58% are female, I think uh, 18% African-American, again, according to the Biden Harris. And I, d- I don't know all the positions that they looked at, but my point is there's really been an emphasis to try to have diversity in the uh, high level, high stakes positions, which I think by anyone's reckoning makes for a stronger government because it's people who bring a diverse set of backgrounds. Um, I will note that I saw somewhere many of them are Ivy League graduates, so may- maybe not as diverse there as they should be in terms of uh, <laughs> the post-secondary work. <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. And as a sort of ease in uh, to Department of Labor, Clark, maybe we should say this. You know, first of all, I want to say on on the Interior uh, Department, what what an amazing thing that what the first time ever in the Interior Department's history to have a Native American in that position, and uh, you know, the Interior Department overseeing things like the Bureau of Indian Affairs mm-hmm. and to say nothing about, you know, America's genocide of the Native American peoples, what you think it, it's really taken to the 21st century to make an appointment like that happen? Uh, startling. So those kinds of appointments do give, I think, the disability community hope that there will be some innovative uh, appointments, maybe breaking some traditional barriers. I mean, I'll just pick on, by, again, by way of transition to the Department of Labor things, I do think they're related in a larger sense. You know, RSA, I mean, the blindness and vision impairment community has had some of our, you know, biggest notables uh, appointed to that role, uh, the RSA commissioner role over the years. 
Now, I, since it's on tape, I don't want to say that, gee, I, you know, would it be delightful to have someone from blindness appointed to that role again? Sure. Uh, but maybe there are folk uh, who would be appointed to that position, people with disabilities who also come with a, you know, a broader, more inclusive or intersectionality of whatever uh, perspective for that role to further energize that program. The areas that we have seen some folks with disabilities either taking positions within <clears throat> government beginning this year um, or being uh, nominated and appointed to new positions. You know, I, I think of the, the new executive director for the U.S. Access Board who spoke at our D.C. leadership conference, Sachin Pavithran, um, and some of the great work that the, the Access Board is, is beginning to do already. Attorney Andres Gallego who is the, the chair of National Council on Disability. Uh, but Paul, in general, I, I agree with you. And this isn't something unique to government, but as we see the, the winds blowing among our you know, corporate and public, se- excuse me, private sector partners, we hear a lot about diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, but we don't always hear disability mentioned when that is elaborated upon. Uh, the, the the Nasdaq had a a statement about increasing the diversity of their board, and disability was not included. Um, so along with the National Disability Leadership Alliance, we we sent them a letter asking them and calling them out for not including people with disabilities. Yeah, and I'll just say here, I'm pleased that uh, American Printing House for the Blind has appointed a director and the first in. in for diversity and inclusion, but the first word in the title is accessibility. And it's really an attempt to, to try to address what you're talking about, Clark, and that is that we need to be looking at diversity in a very broad, with a very broad lens, and accessibility needs to be a key part of that. Obviously, that's true for APH and, and as a representative and a service provider for people with disabilities, but you know, that ought to be true elsewhere. And I do think we need to, to be tougher on that. Um, you know, I think it's interesting that people were very clear in saying to the Biden administration, we expect to see um, a diverse set of appointments. I don't know that anyone in, in political leadership mentioned disability as part of that group, as, as part of the diversity they expected to see. So we still have some work to do. And I, and I would say that that might even include people who have disabilities who are in political leadership positions. Well, it, it's really interesting we're having this conversation because so uh, this administration is the first administration in this nation's history to have someone sitting in a chair at the domestic policy council uh whatever her precise title is but essentially being the nation's top disability policy advisor to the president of the united states we've never had anything formally set up like that uh previously and who is it well it's a a a lady who has my undying respect named kimberly nackstead who's fantastic brilliant phd in the field uh personally and professionally committed to our cause. And uh, I have no idea if she has a disability or not, but she certainly doesn't talk about it. It's not part of her profile. It's not anything that is obvious or overt. Uh, Again, I don't know for sure, but I I expect she looks more like me than she looks like uh, other people. I mean, she's a lady, so there is that. I'm being speaking very candid with you to say, uh, you know, I think that's intriguing that someone who isn't, frankly, using a wheelchair or is deaf uh, or who knows Braille uh, or uses it uh, is in that position, and yet the disability community—I've uh, not heard a single word of. Uh, I suppose it's smart not to badmouth the first disability <laughs> policy advisor. 
I expect that if there is complaints, you're probably going to not hear it except at the bar. But but it's been, you know, her she and that move on the uh, administration's part roundly praised as I think they should be. And maybe that is a sign of the maturity, maybe, of our community to say, of course, we're committed to all the uh, DEI for sure all across the board. Uh, but Kim's the best person for the job. And let's not hear any grousing about it because we know she's a friend and we uh, enjoy working with her. Yeah, and she and has a wide view of uh, a wide knowledge of the uh, of the community. Correct. Yes. Mark, I think you you hit the nail on the head there. Is that she is a, a known ally of the disability community, um, so we're we're able to look beyond the fact that it's not uh, someone with a disability in that role. But hopefully, it takes less time than it took for someone with Native American ancestry to become <laughs> head of the Department exactly. of Interior. Exactly, <laughs> that's someone with a disability in that role. But, Swatha, curious to hear your thoughts. You know, you were working with our our folks from the Rehabilitation Task Force within ACB, as well as the Multicultural Affairs Committee, to su- uh, supply some comments for the the open listening forum at the Department of Labor, uh, basically on the intersectionality and what labor can do to encourage the employment of people with disabilities at the, you know, the intersection of disability and other marginalized communities. Is, is there anything that stands out to you in particular about the work of the administration in this space? Um, yeah. So at the um, DOL, ethnic asked, um, how can we reach out to people with disabilities who also have other marginalized identities? Um, so we also basically our response was nothing nothing less than us. So we talked about um how with the increased diversity among um advisory committees and I think DOL took a lot of heart and took that comment in guidance and I think that it really shows how um committed they are to kind of including inter- inter- intersectionality within um the space of government government employees and contractors and. I think that we see, if nothing else, a, a focus, a, a laser-like focus from the administration in this re- in this regard. Uh, the Ability One Commission that o- oversees the Javits Wagner O'Day Act and the Ability One Program, um, the work that's done by National Industries for the Blind and their associated nonprofit agencies, uh, they also had a commission meeting dealing with you know, how can we reach marginalized or minority communities and the folks in those communities who also have disabilities for training and employment. So Mark or Paul, curious to hear your thoughts. If nothing else, there is a a keen focus on reaching folks who have been previously unserved with government programs here in the new administration. I recently was invited to uh, do a presentation for a board who specifically asked me, um, what, you know what? So you know, obviously, our our concern here is to be much more systems change uh, in focus than we have been in the past. Uh, what would your and and especially to focus on DEI and diversity for sure, uh, Mark? What would what would be your top two or three things you would do uh, if uh, you would advise us to do if uh, you know about in, impacting diversity, promoting it? And my first comment to them, without missing a beat, was well, the first thing you can do is hire your first uh, you know chief staff officer uh, who has a Profound, significant, obvious disability. Uh, gee whiz, uh, you're in the disability field, generally speaking, uh, and yet uh, you haven't made that commitment. You haven't demonstrated that there are clearly, you know, qualified some qualified candidates out there. I wouldn't mind introducing you to, but if you want to have a commitment, 
so I, I would just say, and then Paul, I really will toss this hot potato to you. I, I, uh, I don't recall how many times, for instance, the Ability One Commission or the its predecessor, the Committee for Purchase. I don't know how many times they've had senior leadership uh, with uh, obvious, uh, you know, uh, not to be denied disabilities uh, in that role. And so it seems to me that one of the things that some of these groups can do, it's wonderful to have sessions that open up the door for input and all of that and say all the right things. But come on, guys, uh, put your put your money where your mouth is. All right. Uh, one thing that we glossed over earlier, well, we didn't gloss over it. We mentioned it, executive orders, how uh, President Biden has used more of them than any other president to date. And that's just the the way our government has been heading because the record was previously held by President Trump and I believe President uh, George W. Bush before him. One of these executive orders uh, undid an executive order by President Trump that required the removal of two regulations for every one past. And uh, in my mind, this is one of the biggest things, especially from our perspective, that President Biden could do here uh, at the beginning of his term in the first 100 days. And I I think we've already seen some notable action in this regard. I, again, I go back to uh, the U.S. Access Board and the work that they have been doing here at the start of the 117th Congress. They just completed four sessions on the accessibility of autonomous vehicles. Uh, we know that these sessions were widely attended by the disability community. They were also attended by other government agencies, agencies that oversee uh, large fleets of vehicles. Uh, so that's very exciting to know that they are a voice of knowledge and a reliable resource for other government departments. Clark, they're a great example of exactly why that removal of two for one regulatory order was so destructive because they don't mm-hmm. have that many regulations. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. the ones they have are needed under the Americans with Disabilities Act that you know that are currently being used. And so it's not as though they have a, a couple of regulations they could remove, but there were a, several in the pipeline uh, that they do want to work on. Uh, pedestrian uh, walk accessibility, one is that, that we're interested in, I know. And there's a couple others, I think, that they've been working on. And they couldn't issue because they didn't have two regulations. They would have had to find an agency to trade with. I mean, it's just very bizarre. It's not a way to govern. I know that people want less regulatory. Uh, I mean, many, many people. And I, you know, we've seen Democrat and Republican administrations brag about the number of regulations they've removed and taken the constraints off of people. Um, and, and, you know, at least if you're going to do it, do it that way. Do it in an orderly way. You know, remove regulations that truly are outmoded or, you know, whatever. But this arbitrary rule really hurts a, a small agency like the Access Board. Yeah. And Paul, as you mentioned, the Public Rights of Way Accessibility Guidelines, or PROAG, uh, the Department of Transportation is working on updating the Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices, or MUD. <laughs> so it's certainly plenty of stuff to happen here in the accessible transportation space. One area that we have not seen that much movement, uh, autonomous vehicles and Dude, Paul, I know you're a big techie at heart. Do you think it's just the the political will is not there to pass some all-encompassing AV legislation? Are we going to have to accomplish this by regulation or just taking bite-sized chunks out of this moving forward? You, I mean, you pointed out that there there obviously is a lot of interest in this area. I think um, we may have even talked about this last time. Secretary Buttigieg, I believe, yeah. appeared at one of those, uh, remoted mm-hmm. into one of those meetings. Um, 
there's clearly an interest in AVs and what they can do in the commercial space for individuals, obviously, including individuals with disabilities. But as you know, there's, there's the headwinds that come from the widely reported accidents that occur. I, I, I don't remember which company, but you know, certainly a visible company has had a few. And we can say all day long that compared to the number of accidents that human drivers have, it's minimal. Uh, but it doesn't matter. People are very frightened of the concept of AVs from an accident standpoint, and so it's made it hard to get legislative, legislative, made it hard to get legislative process progress. But there obviously is a lot of interest in this area, and I, and I think a lot of support for accessibility, which is really gratifying to see. Whether it's at the Department of Transportation or the Access Board, it makes our advocacy in this area kind of difficult too, because some of our biggest champions. And who will always forever be our biggest champions, uh, namely, you know, Senator Ed Markey and a few others of that school uh, are among the biggest proponents for, as they see it, uh, safety, et cetera. And I'm not even sort of being critical of them. That's just a political reality. So it does it does make it difficult for some of us uh, to, uh, to move, move things forward. Another regulation that we referenced last time, and it was a... Advanced notice of proposed rulemaking under the Obama administration. It was pulled by the Department of Justice under the Trump administration. When are we going to have clear federal guidance in the form of regulations for the accessibility of websites, mobile apps, online systems, portals, digital information, and platforms? Yeah, I, I, you know, that's a frustration point, um, and it's created an opportunity for some questionable legislation, uh, where you know people are trying to fill in these this gap of accessibility. I mean, I think in our community we don't feel like there's a gap, and, and oh. there's the court case and Win Dixie uh, that that has created a stir of concern about what's covered under the web accessibility requirements or what's what's legally yeah. covered. Um, I I think. The Department of Justice, and you know, now that we're getting to a place where they're beginning to have their top people in place, we we hopefully can start to push push a little bit and see where the interest level might be in moving those regulations forward. If not, I know there's there may be others looking at, and Clark, you may want to talk even a little bit about this about some leg- possible legislative solutions that would be more positive, perhaps than the ones we've seen to date. Um, that kind of tend to look at it more from the business community standpoint. You know, with the uh, hey, we need we need uh, we need to make sure that flexibility is enshrined so that businesses aren't hit, continued to be hit with these lawsuits every day. Um, that in the minds of some aren't reasonable. And Paul, I agree completely. Previous legislative efforts that we've seen have focused on solely the business perspective uh, legislation to be passed to ensure that businesses are not uh, rudely interrupted by these pesky nuisance lawsuits demanding that their goods and services and information be accessible to consumers with disabilities. There is an effort underway to have uh, legislation requiring action from the U.S. Access Board and Department of Justice, among other other government agencies with jurisdictions under the Americans with Disabilities Act to, to take action and promulgate enforceable rules requiring digital accessibility. Uh, and it's it's something that we will continue to provide input on, but also need to be cognizant of how it ebbs and flows throughout the sausage making process that is legislation. Because there is one thing to be said about that, Clark, and that is that when, you know, 
I'm not saying I disagree with the approach of trying to crack the whip and get these departments to get moving, but I will say it, it you know, what's the remedy if a, if a federal agency fails to meet a deadline to get something done? Mm-hmm. I mean, I will tell you that, that it's, I think the rehabilitation act in any case, whatever, uh, uh, Paul, correct me. When we having to do with the, having to do with Section 508 and providing a requirement that the U.S. Justice Department would, you know, not really go in there and light fires on things, but just how about doing a report every other year to assess whether the federal government is actually buying and maintaining, et cetera, accessible technology for federal customers and for federal employees, et cetera. And the Justice Department has done it once, I, I think, in uh, in something like a decade or more. I mean, the reality of it is we can require the Congress can say thou shalt issue rules by a date certain and they will do what they're going to do. And and so I don't want to get folks hopes up too much about, uh, you know, I think it's more an expression, frankly, of congressional will for sure. It puts pressure on an administration to get something done. It adds to the pile of paper that all of us have helped to contribute to over the years to say, for goodness sake, get moving, please. And maybe if the Congress does it, they'll they'll do it. But there is nothing magical or nothing, frankly, absolute in any uh, controlling sense about uh, the Congress saying, finish your regs, federal agency, by this date or else, because it will be what it will be. It will be what it will be. The sense that I'm getting here is that we are working with an administration and a Congress, much like ACB and our members and our fellow organizations in the disability community have over decades. And will continue to do so in the future. Uh, it's not that the elections happened in the fall and a magic wand was waved, and all of a sudden all of our priorities um, come to fruition. Right? Like, there's some conversation about how the the most power and influence that a, a new Congress and a new White House have are 12:01 p.m. inauguration <laughs> day. I think that's probably where we're the most optimistic about what can be accomplished in a new administration as well. And as some of that enthusiasm uh, begins to temper down, we have to go back to work, just like we always have in, in Congresses and years prior, uh, with our nose to the grindstone and keep chipping away at these barriers. Well, so, that's true. The only thing I would say is, is an exception to that, or maybe an, an and to that, is the last time that I can remember in recent, certainly my professional uh, years here, uh, when we were kind of in this similar situation uh, where a the single party controlled both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, there were two major things that got a con- oh, There were many others, but two major ones that we should be concerned about as a disability community. One was this tiny little piece of legislation called uh, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, right? Uh, and, and, and hold on just a second. And then you have, of course, this other tiny little piece of legislation called the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act. I mentioned those two as examples because look, so the CVAA, an unqualified success, love it. Uh, you know, could it have gone farther in some areas, perhaps? But amazing. Uh, and then you have Obamacare, which uh, some people love, some people loathe, but by any measure is a you know a game-changing historic piece of legislation. So when you have this situation, even with our really hyper-divided uh, partisanship in this country. You can get some amazing things done. There, this is this little two-year period now is going to be a stars could be aligned moment for some things to happen, uh, and we'll just—I mean, time will will tell. Uh, it, to it's that interesting, point, by the way, that the uh, 21st Century Act, uh, CVAA, gets signed uh, 
went less than a month before the House was about to kick uh, kick butt and change over to a Republican wave in 2010 with the Tea Party. Much, much in evidence. Well, that, that's exactly right. Things can happen at weird times, and you just never know. Yes, and 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 to underscore that point, the frustrating thing about that was that the CBAA was a bona fide, genuine bipartisan, nonpartisan piece of legislation. That's right. Uh, with all the, and yet because it was a month out from that contentious. Tea Party, you know, hate the Obamacare election. Uh, you didn't have bipartisan representation on the stage in the East Room at the White House, Paul, where you and I had the honor and blessing to go to smile and grin from ear to ear all day because we got to go to a signing ceremony like that. And why? Because you didn't have Democrats and Republicans who wanted to stay on the same stage with each other a month out from an election to appear as though they could actually get something done with each other. There were actually offices on Capitol Hill. Who said, yeah, of course we were invited to go, but Honestly, uh, it, we just we didn't want the optics of that. Well, if you if 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 politicians can't get credit uh, or aren't or are unwilling to accept credit for an amazing thing that is done for you know a handicapped community, a choice of outdated word, intentional, you can't get credit for that. How in the world did we expect people to get anything done in D.C.? I mean, that should be a no-brainer. Everyone should be able to get together and rally around that. And yet, because of the partisanship, people ran. Uh, from that. There was not nearly the bipartisan representation that day when it got signed. So we see large landmark pieces of legislation being introduced and in some cases even passing, right? So the American Rescue Plan, again, $1.9 trillion. We have HR1 and S1 for the people would uh, you know, an over 700-page bill, which would dramatically cha- change the landscape of how elections are administered across the country, along with some provisions that we do not support and reasons why we oppose the bill as a whole, because it would roll back some of the gains that we've made. There's the American Families Plan, which would provide some uh, human capital supports for families, workers, caretakers and providers. Um, There's also a big push on infrastructure that may include the reauthorization of the surface transportation bill, our legislative imperative, the Disability Access to Transportation Act. And the the reason I mention all these, these big things is because they don't all contain priorities from the disability community. So how, how do we get our priorities on the radar of the 117th Congress of the administration. When we're talking about uh, Cogswell-Macy and education reform, I'm not hearing much discussion about uh, IDEA reauthorization. When it comes to the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, which is up for renewal, is there going to be uh, changes to the forefront of how vocational rehabilitation services are provided uh, so that we can reach people with disabilities and move them from government assistance programs or the benefits that they've earned, like SSDI, into the workforce? Well, I'm going to answer a couple of points, but I want to ask Mark a question. Um, you did see in the president's budget a you know decent increase for funding for special education. That was good to see. I think, you know, while you're right, uh, some of those larger bills you just talked about aren't replete with disability programs. There are programs that we, I think, all find beneficial, and even one that doesn't get talked about a lot from the previous COVID uh, bill, the $1.9 trillion, um, is a broadband uh, effort led through the FCC to, to provide um, significant monthly discount for people to make sure they have access to broadband, and even some uh, a slight uh, amount of money to help purchase equipment. 
Uh, so I would urge people to take a look at the broadband benefit under the FCC, um, which is a which is now going to start going into effect. I think I want to say in June, perhaps you can start applying. May twelfth, um, coming up next week. Wow, oh, that's soon. Okay, yeah, yeah. So more um, to come. So that's encouraging. Again, not specific on disability, but certainly important to our community. But I wanted to ask Mark this question because I've been surprised to see people just sort of blowing past. Oh, we're not going to do IDEA, but we might do WIOA, uh, Work- Workforce uh, Act. Um, IDEA hasn't been reauthorized in 17 years uh, or some such, I think, right? And so why are we blowing past that? <laughs> well, and it, and I love the fact you asked this question because the follow-up punchline to that is, oh, and by the way, Paul, yeah, they're interested in opening up the Workforce Investment and Opportunity Act, but not Title IV, the vocational rehabilitation provisions, not the Rehabilitation Act, with staff on the Hill saying, yeah, we're happy to play around with these other programs and do it, but we are not going to talk about the Rehab Act. Now, what's just, to me, obnoxious about that is I think we know why. I mean, when you talk to people somewhat candidly, they'll say, well, first of all, it was such a delight when we re- tried to reauthorize the Rehab Act last time. It only took 14 years. And, and quite frankly, after we did all that hard work, and what did we get for our pains? Uh, you know, less less grousing on the part of people. Thank you very much. I mean, I don't, you know, if, if there's no reward in it for politicians, I don't know that it ends up being on their short list. But of course, then they would also say, yes, and by the way, if we did open up the Rehabilitation Act this time, uh, on the top of that list are going to be people who are absolutely as polarized as the Democrats are from the Republicans on the question of uh, competitive integrated employment, people who want to nail that further into the wall, and other people who are going to want to repeal it, roll it back, whatever. And who needs that argument? And that same overall dynamic, to answer your question now directly, seems seems to have been happening now for years with special education law where, you know, the state special ed directors say, we don't need any more requirements. We're already up to our neck in requirements. And, uh, you know, we don't, we, we support the civil rights kiddos with disabilities, but don't give us any more paperwork. And the hardcore disability advocates say, yeah, but we're, we're, what we're really concerned about are those folks on the other side of the disability spectrum who want to put further restrictions on our kids and seclude them and restrain them and everything else. And we don't want that. And then, you know, there are some of us that want to come along and say, yes, and by the way, our kids are really getting the proverbial short end of the stick, and we want some pretty significant changes. And so the folks on Capitol Hill say, right, so bottom line is either people don't want to see things change, certainly the state directors don't, a lot of the disability community doesn't is fearful of the changes that they'll get, and then you've got, from their point of view, us idealists who don't want to just add three or four little sentences to the law, but actually want to come on and do major things. And they say, you know what? We have zero appetite for any of this. And, and I just think it's an abdication of their responsibility across the board where major disability policy is concerned. How do you change it? I don't know. I mean, you have to get, uh, I, it's not because we're doing it, but I think it's, you know, we are trying to do this with Coswell Macy, build and sustain some really good, strong champions who can push back against that tide or be the one person, that lone voice, the, Mr. Smith or Mrs. Smith who goes to Washington to say, this is a moral outrage and it, you know we've got to start changing things for people with disabilities because otherwise we're just going to continue to coast along in a number of these areas. And this may, in a way, come back to not having enough people in Congress who are parents of kids with disabilities. Correct. There are some who have disabilities and who went through perhaps educational systems as people with disabilities. Exactly. I don't know if we have anybody who falls into that. I can't think of one that falls into that yeah. category. I think you're right. I mean, obviously, the two most visibly disabled people. Well, I can't remember how Congressman Langevin uh, became a wheelchair user, but obviously, Senator Duckworth was in combat. 
Yes, and Kathy Morris Rogers, once upon a time, uh, member of Congress leadership, et cetera. Uh, and perhaps there would have been a, an education connection there. But in any case, I, yeah, but I, I mean, you I know, think your your fundamental point is well taken. Right, not to interrupt you, but right. I think I think we don't have people who can speak from that experience directly as a parent yeah. sitting in the right places. I mean, you just mentioned one who certainly Congress Congresswoman Morris Rogers can speak to that issue. Yep. But she's one person, and there may be a few others. There probably, I know there are a few others. I just can't think of them at the moment. But yeah. there's not many, and I'm not sure they're on the right committees because you know they have other interests. And again, we don't have we don't have people with visible disabilities who went through the system, perhaps receiving uh, special education services, and who can speak to these issues passionately and say what you just said, which is, look, the the one thing I'm going to make sure we do this session, or I'll I'll stop the train on everything else, is exactly. get education policy changed in this country to to better serve students with disabilities. Yep. And maybe that speaks to your point, Clark, which is the same reason why we're maybe not seeing people push appointments as hard as they should or uh, elements of infrastructure and family services um, when, when those larger bills get introduced. Um, but the, the positive side is that we have become, in some ways, part of the larger conversation. So when people talk about broadband, mm-hmm. they talk about the needs of people with disabilities as part of that. Exactly. That's absolutely good. Yeah. That's, a, that's a good thing. And Paul, you've kind of brought us full circle here. It goes back to the the importance of having a disability as part of the diversity, equity, inclusion conversation. Who knew that that would be the focus or the moral takeaway of today's podcast? <laughs> but, but also, it's not that somebody in a wheelchair or a blind person is just going to parachute in and become a member of Congress. So the more that we can have initiatives, again, whether it's our corporate partners government departments and agencies uh, providing the training and opening the doors, right? So that somebody with a disability can succeed on their own merits in a position, rise up through the ranks, and really that's further the opportunities for the representation at all levels. I think that's how we get our policies moved forward. Well said, young man. <laughs> uh, as we wrap up here, uh, Swatha, is there any any closing questions that you have for Mark and Paul? Yeah, um, I just want to see um, ask um, what do you guys what do you both think will be taken up within oh, how will happen or be taken up within the next couple of years and next um, administration and this Congress? So yeah, predictions. Going back to Mark's crystal ball. Mark, what's going to happen in the rest of the 117th Congress and Biden's, in parentheses, first term? I, I, I think we can overall expect over these two years a certain amount of the amazing momentum, which seems to be in play now, to sort of wind down, because that's just, I mean, if history is our guide, that's what will happen, which means all of us who care about this stuff do it professionally or and or personally, care about advocacy, you know, uh, today is the day. Uh so, so get in when you guys hear Clark and Swatha talk to you about, uh, okay, ACBers, let's get cranking. Uh, today is the day to respond. Uh, and uh, because while it is never over, over, that was a good window. The window is wide open, lots of breeze blowing in it, and, uh, and it's not all hot air. Uh, we can actually get some things done. And uh, so, so let's try to seize the opportunities we have sooner as opposed to later uh, while we can. I think uh, I think I think that's right, Mark. I you know I let me I want to strike a positive note here, which is because Mark always accuses me of being a little Pollyanna. And, yeah, um, we've got some fine people that are that have come into this administration. People that I hear about who might come into this administration. These are caring, passionate champions of, of what I think a lot of us from a disability perspective would like to see. Again, setting politics aside, 
Um, I think we'll see some good efforts at the agency level to try to address some of the challenges, whether that be through regulation or through uh, policy letters, policy action, maybe on the Department of Justice enforcement measures. Um, I think we'll see some po- some very positive things from 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 the disability community standpoint um, that we can get behind and be excited about. I'm not sure that we can expect much from from Congress just because it is so divided and so divisive. And you know, our issues, while they tend to be more nonpartisan, sort of this. I think you see that with Cogswell Macy. You see that with something like the Access to Technology Affordability Act that. The National Federation of Blind has been championed, but I think a lot of the rest of us kind of support as a good policy. It's very bipartisan. Even though these these efforts are bipartisan, they're, they're just hard to get through. They're always hard to get through Congress, and it's increasingly hard now because there's not much you can attach them to, going back to things like idea reform. Um, Access Technology Act has a shot at being attached to something because it's, you know, it's, it's a tax change that's relatively easy to find its way through. Um, but I think I think it's those we're, we're going to see some of those kinds of incremental things, maybe. But that's probably the best we can unfortunately hope for. I, I don't know uh, that we're going to see large scale change. I, in fact, I'm sure we won't at the congressional level, at least not now. And then, you know, after the midterms, the part, partisan balance might switch. And then you've got Congress and president, at least part of Congress, perhaps a different different uh, partisan makeup in terms of its leadership. Uh, and, you know, then all bets are off in terms of anything happening. <laughs> Uh, from from the administration or from Congress, and that's sad to me. I, I hope you know. I hope I'm wrong. Maybe not even just from the partisan standpoint. I hope I'm wrong from the poli- politics of cooperation standpoint. Well, I think, and, that, and maybe again, we're I know we're wrapping up here, but I would say for people who are listening, does that mean when you hear calls for either Cogswell Macy or the data, you know, uh, disability, whatever? I can never get it accurately. Clark, uh, the Data Act, the Transportation Act, other priorities we have. Does that mean we should ignore them? No, because anytime that you hear calls for support for that or call your member of Congress or email them, let them know and ask them to co-sponsor it, all of that just demonstrates the, the demand on the part of real people. And it helps the Pauls, the Clarks, the Marks, the Swathas, and others help make the case for the incremental change that Paul is talking about. I can tell you that we're already in process now. And frankly, it's a little bit farther along than I would have expected. Uh, to get some kind of language tucked away into the appropriations process that is an annual process to essentially help steer a friendly Department of Education to maybe do some more things than previous Departments of Education might do. That's a far cry from passing something like the Cogswell Macy Act, for sure, but it advances public policy. It shows that this Congress is perhaps more receptive to what we're wanting to do on a smaller scale. And frankly, all really good public uh, policy, sustainable public policy is incremental. It doesn't come in fits and starts in major pieces of change like major bills. Mark and Paul, thank you so much for joining us here again on the Advocacy Update podcast and for the work (laughs) that you're doing here in the 117th Congress. Folks listening, if you have any questions or advocacy-related concerns that you would like to share with Swatha and me, please email us at advocacy at acb.org. And as we always say at the end of our podcast, keep advocating. Thanks for listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. You can reach us by emailing advocacy at acb.org. The ACB Advocacy Update is a production of the American Council of the Blind in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about ACB, visit us online at www. 
www.acb.org.